All right, everyone. Uh, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, which I encourage, we're on page 571. We're moving through the book of Isaiah. Sermon series is Isaiah, Salvation Belongs to the Lord. And today's sermon is titled Encountering God. And we look at this famous passage in Isaiah chapter 6. Today we take a turning point, uh, hit a turning point in the book of Isaiah. The first five chapters are kind of like a prologue or introduction. Uh, and they kind of present us with the major themes of the book of Isaiah. But today in chapter 6, Isaiah tells us of the day he was saved. He went, to he went to church like every Sabbath. But on this day, he ran into somebody he didn't expect. The last person Isaiah expected to meet, he met the Lord. And it shook his world. Have you met the Lord? And has it shaken your world? Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go, and say to the people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like the terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, this is a very important word to us. It shows us who you are in glory. It shows us how you quake us and shake us so that we can finally be who you want us to be by your grace. We need this today. We need it, some of us for the first time to come into your presence and really experience the reality of God Almighty. For the rest of us, we need to be reminded today of what it means to be your child, to be awakened and shaken by you for your glory, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> In 1990, Ivan Browning 
He's a climatologist, a seismologist, he's a consultant. He predicted a huge earthquake that would hit southern Missouri in, in, um, near a town called New Madrid. There's a fault line there called the New Madrid Fault. You probably didn't know this, but two of the three largest earthquakes to hit the continental United States were in Missouri, the largest being in 1811. The quake was so large that it changed the flow of the mighty Mississippi. In other words, it went north, not south, and it moved. And now, Browning predicts another. He predicts there's a 50-50 chance of a mega quake to hit New Madrid, and the date, the date it would hit, December 3rd, 1990. Everyone was on a state of high alert. People bought emergency supplies. There was a run on hardware stores so people could buy things to secure their shelves to the walls. It was nonstop news as the day approached. People were full of fear and anxiety. And then came December 4th. And it was as if the scare was never there. People went on living without even commenting on it again. The mega quake never came. And people went back to living as they always had. In today's passage, an earthquake befalls Isaiah. It came and it changed him forever. And so we too must realize God must shake us. God must quake us. In order for us to stop living self-absorbed, empty, petty lives... In order for us to experience life as God intends for his creatures, he must shake us. There must be a quake. Isaiah models for us what must take place in all of us if we're, not ju- if we're to just not believe in God as a, as a concept, but actually experience him as a life-changing reality. The big idea here is this, that God powerfully shakes his people so that the reality of his glorious existence permeates through us. Now this morning I'm borrowing heavily from Tim Keller. I hardly ever quote Tim, even though he was part of this church getting planted, but uh, he preached a a great message on this, and so I'm kind of taking his three headings, except I'm editing one just a little bit. So here is going to be our headings this morning. We're going to look at the God quake, the self quake, and the mission quake. Huh? See where we're going here? All right. Anyway, uh, the God quake. You guys ready? When an object that is heavier than water is dropped into water, what happens? There's a flood. You could say it's a water quake. Now, for some reason, lately, Instagram has been feeding me all these videos of really big, kind of overweight men doing cannonballs and belly flops into bodies of water. And you have to admit, that's kind of pretty funny stuff, right? Especially, uh, you know, the uh, belly flops. In one video, the man's size is so big and... His weight is so big and he's so high up, he jumps into the water and the water literally overflows out of the pool with a flood. I put that one on repeat. It's kind of funny. Uh, The big idea here with the God quake is that God quakes us so that he's no longer a concept but a reality. God is no longer a concept but a reality. Isaiah helps us to see what happens Isaiah, understand at this point, is the not yet prophet, right? So he goes to church one Sabbath, and an episode of Stranger Things unfolded upon him. Look at how the temple physically quaked. In the found, verse 4, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. 
why this quaking? Look at verse 1. We read, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then angelic beings called seraphim were flying around the Lord's throne singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We need a quick word study on the word glory. The Hebrew word is kabod. It's very rich. It's multifaceted. First, its primary meaning is that of heaviness or weightiness or like burden. When describing God, it refers to a permanent versus ephemeral or illusory. It means substantial and important versus unimportant. It means real versus unreal. So when the seraphim sing praises declaring the glory of God, they're talking about God's weightiness as compared to all things in creation. God alone is ultimate. He is permanent. He is the only true powerful being in all existence. And so if God truly comes into your life, his weightiness, his glory will quake you. And how do you know if you've been quaked by the glory of God? Well, when God comes upon you and shakes you and quakes you, it has a way of rearranging everything in your life, right? Why? Because God is ultimate. Think about it. Keller states, compared to God, everything else has no weight. And whenever God's reality comes down, everything is shaken. And so when God quakes upon you, what happens? Isaiah shows us that we move from God being a concept to God being a reality. It is the difference between believing in a God and actually having an experience of God's glory. You know, it's not as if Isaiah went to church that day and came away thinking, oh my gosh, there really is a God. (laughs) No, he believed in God. He believed in God. But until the God quake, God was just just a concept. Here's how Keller describes concept versus reality. What's the difference between concept and reality? I tell you, it's all a matter of glory. God as a concept is lighter than you. So when you bring God as a concept into your life, you shape it. It fits in around your existing patterns. It doesn't move you around. It doesn't quake you. If you believe in God and it just hasn't changed you very much, he's just a concept. And a God concept can't really change your beliefs. It just fits in with your existing beliefs. So people will say, we believe in God because we think there must be a creator because that makes sense of everything there is. But basically, we don't believe in God in such a way that he comes in and rearranges our beliefs. Instead, he fits in with our existing beliefs. Does that make sense? In other words, you don't have a real God. You have God as a concept. You don't have a God that can actually change some of your deepest held beliefs, contradict you, actually make you change. He fits into you. You shape the God concept, and the God concept doesn't shape you. You have more glory than the God concept. The God concept is what? It is it's lighter. You know, plenty of people try to get religious, right? So I just need to start going to church. I need to start praying. I need to start reading my Bible. Why? Because they, they need help, you know, meeting their goals, finding their dreams. They say, oh, I need a little more inspiration. I need a little more strength. So maybe I should go to church and fit God in. In other words, you're fitting God into your agenda. You fit God into your existing beliefs because God as a concept is lighter than you, but God as a reality is heavier than you. 
And when the real God comes into your life, then you actually get into the presence of the real God, like Isaiah. And then things give way in your life because of God's glory. Things that you've always believed very deeply are actually changed by his word because God's word has more glory than your beliefs. Have you experienced this in your life? And also, instead of God being fit into your agenda, agenda, God becomes your agenda. He radically changes your priorities. God was a concept to Isaiah until the moment when he showed up as a weighty, heavy, glorious reality that began to rearrange his life. And so let me ask you now, is God a concept to you or is he a heavy reality? Does your weightiness push God around or has his glory quaked upon you so that your thoughts and beliefs and agendas have been rearranged because of him? So Isaiah experienced a God quake. Then he experienced a self quake. Isaiah's self quake came with three experiences, radical beauty, radical humility, and radical purity. First, the experience of radical beauty. Try to visualize what Isaiah reports here. I mean, really try to think about what it must have looked like for him. See, Isaiah's intention in writing this down is so that we would see as well, and that we would take to heart what he describes so that it can impact us as it did him. Again, verse 1 and 2. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah saw the Lord sitting in glory, high and lifted up. And what was around him? Seraphim. Now, the Hebrew word for seraphim is seraphim. (laughs) All right. That's the noun. The verb form literally means to burn completely. Seraphim are literally burning ones. And as they fly in the presence of the Lord, and, and there are millions of them, what do they repeatedly shout to each other? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah heard the seraphim shout out, holy, 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 three times. What's the significance of this? Well, in the Hebrew language, magnitude is conveyed through repetition. We don't usually see it, though, in the English translation. For example, in 2 Kings, there's an account of later on when the Babylonians overrun the temple, and they took everything out of it of value, including things made of the purest gold. In Hebrew, it literally reads gold gold, (laughs) which means it wasn't your usual quality of gold. This was gold gold. So in the Hebrew, magnitude is conveyed by doubling a word. Now, only once in the Bible, I guess you can imagine where, only once in the Bible is a word tripled, and here it is. The seraphim praise the Lord, saying, holy, holy, holy. The Hebrew word we translate kadosh um, is, is a multifaceted word as well. I think often when we hear the word holy, we tend to run into one very narrow area of what holiness means. And we tend to think of like purity, moral good, but that's just like one facet on this beautiful diamond of, of kadosh, of holy. The main meaning of kadosh or holy primarily conveys God's otherness, his complete difference from anything on earth, his utter set-apartness his superlative greatness that no other being has. There is none other like God. 
And so when we talk of God's wisdom as being holy wisdom, we are to say that it is infinite, beyond and better than anyone else's. And when we say God's love is a holy love, it's to say that God's love is infinitely and perfectly beautiful beyond anyone else's. Now back to the seraphim. They sing holy, 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 which means they are beholding what? The superlative brilliance of God's being. And the verb tense for call to another is a present progressive, which means they're constantly and continually singing praises one to another, bouncing it off each other. In other words, they're what? They're fascinated with the beauty of his holiness. Absolutely fascinated. Now back to the point of the self-quake. The seraphim simply cannot get enough of the beauty of the Lord's holiness. Listen, they aren't in it. They aren't in any way serving. They're not in it for their own self-interest. And when God produces a self-quake in Isaiah, he becomes one who serves God just because of who God is, not to get anything out of him. Keller gives a good illustration. He says, imagine that if you have some family money. I know for some of us, we got to think a lot about that. Imagine you have some family money, like lots of it. And someone comes along and says, they would like to marry you. And so you get married. And imagine that after some point, uh, your spouse comes to realize that he or she can't get his or her hand on the family money and they leave you. How do you feel? Violated, used, means to an end, an object? You feel like you were not loved for who you were in and of yourself, right? Keller states, do you realize that almost all of us relate to God like that? How do you think he feels? And think about it. We've all talked to people over the years who said things like, oh, I used to believe in God. I used to go to church. I used to try to serve, but, but he didn't come through for me. I asked God for this, and he, he let me down. In other words, they're saying, I look for God as if he had this incredible blessing bank account somewhere. But then I noticed he was never going to let me get my hands on it. I was really after blessings, not God, just as blessings. They married God for their money. But the seraphim, my friends, they were adoring and serving God, not on the basis of some cost-benefit analysis. They're serving him just because, just because of the beauty of who he is. For the seraphim, God's holiness is not useful. It's beautiful. And I think we get this on like a human level, right? You know, you got those favorite songs you like to listen to in your car, you crank it up, or you put your headphones on and you crank it up. You're like, what, what? I'm listening to a song. You know, and you're like really loving it. And you're having a great time. Why do you do this? Why do you find such joy in it? Are you making any money off of it? Does it bring you any acclaim or approval? No, it's just good. It's satisfying. It's beautiful. You listen. It's satisfied. My friends, that's how God should be to us. Just satisfying. And think this through. Jonathan Edwards makes an important observation. The angels and Isaiah find that God's holiness is attractive in and of itself. But Edwards points out that that the, the power of God is something that you can actually get excited about selfishly, right? Think about it. Like, it can be a benefit to you. You know, you can rejoice. I got a, I got a powerful God on my side. 
You can get excited about the wisdom of God selfishly because it benefits you. You can get excited about the mercy of God selfishly because, oh, I'm going to get rid of all my guiltiness, right? But Edward says that, that holiness has no use at all. How does God's holiness have any use to you? It's of no benefit to you. In fact, it's nothing but a threat. Anyone who worships God's holiness and just adores God's holiness is loving him just for who he is in himself. Now, how does someone get there? To the point of seeing the beauty of God's holiness. Well, it's because Isaiah didn't just just experience a radical beauty. He experienced a radical humility. Verses 4 and 5. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me. Remember last week we saw the six woes that God spoke upon the nation? You know, it's true, our tendency is to point to others and say, woe on them, right? Woe on those people. They're sinners for sure. Those Democrats, those Republicans, woe to them. Remember Voltaire's famous critique of all of us. He wrote, no snowflake in an avalanche ever feels responsible. But Isaiah is shaken. For the first time in his life, he knows what is wrong with the world. He is. Woe. It's a malediction. He's pronouncing a curse upon himself. He's saying, I don't deserve to live. I'm ruined. I'm undone. God deserves to judge me. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Now, what's happening? Keller says this. He says that in the presence of superlatives, you always find it traumatic because it crushes you. I've told the story recently about my, my brother, John, he was the smartest kid that I ever knew and smartest kid at our huge school. He got all mad one day when he got, uh, missed one question on the SAT. No one at our school was as smart as he. It frustrated him. But then he went to Princeton. And he told me when he was there on a phone call, he said, Mark, I thought I was smart, and then I came here to Princeton. Not only is everyone smart like me, but there are also many who are way smarter. He was undone. Woe is me. In the presence of superlatives, you always find it traumatic because it crushes you. Jewish tradition states that Isaiah was a wealthy, educated elite. His prospects, none, there were none higher. His father was brother of the king. And from reading this book, we are left with the impression that Isaiah was highly gifted as a great artistic intellect. Think about it, 3,000 years later, and people are still marveling at this book he wrote. And think about this, Isaiah was a gifted orator in an oral culture. He used his tongue and his lips to great effect. He had a golden tongue, and he likely saw himself leading the nation one day. He wasn't a prophet yet. And like all gifted young people, right, young people, he must have thought he knew what was wrong with all those old people in charge. 
and he knew it was wrong with everybody else in the world, and someday he was going to use his lips to climb to the top and fix it all. And now he finds himself laid bare in the presence of superlative holiness and glory. And for the first time, he sees himself rightly. All the people around me have unclean lips, and I'm just as bad as the rest. Even my lips, which are the best part of me, are sinful and flawed. This is radical humility. Have you experienced this radical humility? Now notice, as soon as Isaiah experiences this radical humility, what comes next? A radical purity. God's grace comes upon Isaiah. An angel brings the means of God's sacrificial grace to the place that Isaiah senses his greatest need, his lips. We see the radical purity in verses 6 and 7. Then, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Please try to think through what was going through Isaiah's mind when he saw a burning, flaming angel pick up a hot coal of tongs and fly towards him. Now, it wouldn't have been peace. He would have been full of anxiety. He had been petrified. See, every place in the Old Testament, fire represents judgment. It represents wrath. It doesn't represent cleansing or forgiveness. So the minute that Isaiah confesses woe in God's presence, he sees that he's the problem. And he knows that God has the right to judge him. He thinks he's a goner. Woe is me. And here comes an angel. I think many of you know my story of coming to faith. I was 29 years old living in St. Louis. I owned a computer business. I was living very much like those ancient Israelites in Isaiah's day. God had no presence in my life. I lived my own plans, my own dreams. I was well on my way. My business was successful. I just bought another company, and I was full of pride. But then one night I woke up with this horrible feeling that I, in my gut I couldn't shake it. God's weight had come down. The thought I couldn't shake in my head was this kept repeating, if there is a God, he has every right, sorry for the language, he has every right to be pissed at this world. We're all like bugs scurrying upon this earth, screwing each other and screwing each other over, and no one is looking up to give God any approval. I was crushed by the weightiness of God's glory. I poured a pint glass of vodka and drank it down. I passed out. But I woke up a few hours later with the same haunting thought in my head. It would not leave me. I didn't know the words of Isaiah at that time, but I was thinking, woe is me, for I am lost, and I dwell in a land of lost people. I lost 10 pounds in a week. <laughs> now, unlike Isaiah, his mercy came like instantaneously Mine was a prolonged, like, three-month journey of woe and heaviness and burden. But then finally I came to believe in Christ, and God's mercy flooded into my life. God was no longer a concept or a possibility. He was real. He was real. He was real. 
And his weightiness began changing everything about me. Like Isaiah, I thought I was a goner. (laughs) And like Isaiah, I came to experience having my guilt taken away and my sin atoned for. Have you experienced that? Is your sin just a concept, or is it something that's been powerfully taken care of by the grace of God? Now, how did this happen to Isaiah? Well, where did those coals come from? They came from an altar in heaven. An altar is a place of sacrifice and atonement and forgiveness. The seraph uses tongs because the coal is holy. It's set apart. And he touches Isaiah's lips, but his lips... As his lips were scorched, something amazing took place. Instead of being consumed, the angel said, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Now, how is this possible? How could, how could fire, the fire of God, be used as a cleansing agent? It's possible because centuries later, almost the exact same thing happened. Did you know that centuries later in Jerusalem, the temple, it was shaken? Do you know that there was an earthquake when God came down? When did this happen? Matthew 27, 45, we read, From the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Then the temple was so shaken that the doorposts were shaken, the thresholds were shaken, that giant veil, this curtain that separated sinful man from the holiness of God was split from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then shortly thereafter, having borne our sins, he said, it is finished. What was happening? Would you remember the night before in the garden? Jesus said, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. What was he saying? He's saying the words of Isaiah, I'm undone. I'm ruined. I'm coming apart. But no angel showed up with a coal to atone for his sins. Why? Because Jesus was the sacrifice at the altar. Jesus was shaken by the judgment of God. He was shaken to the very depths so that you and I could be unshakable in God's presence. That our sin would be atoned for. And so that we can get a new self-image that comes from this self-quake. Having God's glory come down into your life. And so if this is true, understand this. God accepts you completely in Christ. Not on the basis of your performance. And God in our eyes is now what? It's beautiful. And so you don't serve God to get things because why? You've already got everything you need. Well, then why do we serve? Because of the beauty of what he is and what he's done. Because you want to know him. And that we know that in, as we serve, we get to know Christ better. You want to resemble him. You want to be part of this new business that God's doing on earth and saving the world. Which leads to our last point. So we looked at the God quake, the self quake, now for the mission quake. All right, so the big idea here is that when the reality of God's grace comes upon you, you experience an energizing call to live for him and his purposes. How does this come about for Isaiah? 
I think some of you are familiar with Jack Miller. He was a pastor in Philly, New Life Philly. He's got uh, his sonship courses. Some of you here have gone through those. Um, he's also a pastor who gave us this helpful saying. The gospel that called to Isaiah and calls to us, it calls saying, cheer up, you're far more sinful than you ever dared imagine and far more loved than you ever dared hope. At the same time, that's what the gospel does for us. Well, Isaiah realizes that he's far more sinful than he ever dared imagine and at the same time far more loved than he ever dared hope. Isaiah has just come alive in God's grace. Remember our motto here at Grace Church, right? Remember what it is? Alive in Christ. Isaiah is alive now. And right after God's grace landed upon him, God says, I've got this business I'm doing here uh, down on earth. I'm saving the world and I need a new partner. And oh, by the way, the work I'm calling you to is horrible. And all of your life will prove to be unsuccessful in the world's eyes. You're going to preach and preach and preach and nobody's going to listen to you. Instead, they will persecute you for the rest of your life. And Hebrew tradition says that Isaiah's body was at one point cut in half with a saw. Horrible way to go. How is it that Isaiah and how is it that we can allow God to use us in ways that the world finds to be a failure? Well, his identity has been thoroughly remade by the weighty glory of God. Isaiah's worth and dignity and meaning and purpose have been recalibrated by this quake of God's glory. But consider those who haven't experienced this work of God in their life. How do they get self-worth? Well, they have to go earn it, right? By performance, be it work, family, relationships, things you can point to and say, I did this. But living to manufacture your own self-worth always fails you. How so? Well, if you are doing a good job, living up to your own standards, then you're bold, you're confident, but you're not humble, you're arrogant. When I was running my computer company, there was times when I was hanging out at a restaurant or at a bar, and I would look around and I would just sit there soaking it all in, thinking, I bet I make more money than everybody here. I was bold, confident, definitely not humble. I was arrogant. But say you're not living up to your own standards. You're probably somewhat humble and kind. But you're not bold or confident, right? Now listen, when God's grace descends upon you, he gives you a new identity so that you can be both, both humble and bold at the same time. See, you know that you're far more sinful, like Isaiah, than you ever dared imagined, and also far more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than you ever dared hope. And so nothing can shake you. See, when God has shaken you and implanted in you his holy grace, it makes you become unshakable. You are bold and humble at the same time. I think you know what I'm talking about. If you're honest, you're like thinking, yeah, but I'm not as good as you think I am. But, no, but you understand the concept. You've seen it in your life, Christian. I know you have. Isaiah has just become the right person for serving God, bold and humble. So to us. Christian, God's life quake upon you 
frees you to live with great purpose. As the heavy reality of God presses into your life, you desire to, to serve God out of simple love and out of delight for his holiness. But the work he calls us to is hard. Look at how difficult it, it was for Isaiah. Verse 9, go and say to the people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Right? Make the heart of the people dull and their ears heavy. And blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. It sounds harsh, right? It sounds harsh. But remember this. Think of all the people in God's world who say, I don't want to hear any more about this God talk. I don't want you to tell me more about his word. Enough already, right? Well, guess what? People who say no to God and his word because they are dull of hearing, dull of seeing, eventually God gives them what they want, less ability to hear, less ability to see things. Maybe that's you here today. Please stop and turn and ask God to shake you, to quake you, before it's too late. Next, Isaiah asks a practical, practical question. After hearing that, you'd be like going, holy cow, like, is this for like, like a month or two? Or like, do I get a retirement? You know, can I build a house on the east end of Long Island maybe? And just, whew, after all this work, you know? Verse 11, he says, um... How long, Lord? Got to love it. He's hoping for a few years and everything will just come around. God has something else in mind. Verse 11. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. Remember, the Assyrians and the Babylonians are going to come. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. God is telling Isaiah that it's not going to end well. For the rest of your life, it's going to be terrible, spiritually, economically, politically. It's going to be one big disaster in the land after another. In your lifetime, you're never going to see it get better. Your nation is going to be like a, a giant grove of trees cut down to its stump. But the stump, the stump is the holy seed. There will be a remnant someday to come who receives the Messiah, the Lord Christ, when he comes in boldness and humility. From this stump will grow my people and my plans, and it'll eventually lead to a new heavens and a new earth. It'll all blossom out of your work, Isaiah. Now, Christian, none of us can have that same calling as Isaiah, and I think most of us are like going, I'm glad I don't have that same, that same call. But we all share a similar calling, to be shaken by God, to be alive in Christ, to take such delight in the beauty of God's holiness, and the weight of his reality, that it redefines us. Here am I, send me. Isaiah gave himself joyfully to the service of the Lord before he had the job description. You notice that? <laughs> That's true for us too. To take delight in the beauty of God's holiness. To give ourselves joyfully to the Lord saying, 
Here am I, send me. We're saying essentially, not my will, but thy will be done, right? I don't know about you, but this chapter in Isaiah has a way of humbling me, reminding me that I still have a lot of shaking for God to do in my life. How about you? As we come to the Lord's Supper, be reminded that the altar at the cross, your guilt has been taken away and your sin truly atoned for. This table calls to you, calls to me and says, cheer up, you're far more sinful than you ever dared imagined and far more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than you ever dared hope. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that by your spirit, your people are shaken through your word. And we thank you that in Christ Jesus, though, we are made, um, being remade in his image to be unshakable people by his grace. We pray that you would press this more deeply into us, that we would more and more forsake finding happiness and joy in this earthly, worldly things. May we find our greatest pleasure and delight in heaven itself and in your holiness. For you are holy, 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 Lord Almighty. Amen.